It's Thursday, July 15th, and you've got Oz in your ears. This is Dave. And this is Pete, and we're on the road for Radio Free Oz on Bob, the 57-foot yacht with its captain, BP CEO, Horny Wayward, uh, Tony Hayward, at the helm. Oh, welcome aboard, boys. And with him is Mississippi Governor Haley Barber. What a beautiful day for sailing. The sea like moose. Uh, where are you uh, headed there uh, now, Tony? Well, I'm sailing around the world to offer my glad hand to all these sheiks and sheiks and Russians and Greeks who've partnered with BP. <laughs> oh! Ah, Watch it, it's out. those damn birds again. Albatrosses keep falling out of the oil rain and landing around my neck. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to sail out of here away from all the, the dead birds and the crowds of people suffering from unemployment. It's a, it's a disease, isn't it? More like an epidemic. Uh, we don't seem to be making much headway, Tony. Well, I could usually get through the gulf in a day, but not in these heavy seas. Oh, that six-foot-thick oil scum is, is bloody hard to cut through. That's no scum, Tony. What? What reminds me of the slick sheen from a criss-craft rafting by pulling a good-looking girl and a well-built guy. Hmm, I don't think the scum is your biggest problem, Tony. I think mm, that is... Oh. Mother of Pearl! It's the whitening whale! The biggest super skimmer in the world! Look at those booms! Oh. They must be a thousand feet long and stuffed with salon poodle hair and gaga wig! Oh, it's heading right and it's, and it's pushing a vast slew of dispersion! It's going to sop us up! Why did you just let Pete and me off right here at Gas War Island, okay? Uh, well, thanks, fellas. Good luck with the whitening whale. No worries, lads. I've never met an oil disaster as slick as me. This is Peter Bergman and David Osmond, completely at sea for Radio Free Oz, hoping that all's well with this oil well. Uh, where do we go to get a drink, I Pete? No, where's the helicopter? I love that music. I want to dance. Yes, here it is. Radio Free Oz in your ears. Up here on RadioFreeOz.com. Webcasting to the world. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Our co-host, David Osmond. Hey, it's the middle of the month already, Pete. Yeah. Middle of July. How'd we do that? I don't know. That's really fast. Summer comes, summer goes. Well, man. and summer hit the uh, United States with a great punch. Pow! Ooh, baking in New York. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I mean, I, I, I am sympathetic with my brothers and sisters in the Big Apple, or the Baked Apple, so to speak. <laughs> the Baked Apple it is It now. is, really, man. Yeah. But here on here on the island, I mean, it gets to be 82, and everybody's going, whoa, heat wave. Records are breaking. No, but you just go down to the water and cool off. and Jump you know, in the lake. You can jump in the lake here. So you know? when someone says go jump in the lake, yeah, they're, yeah, they're, they they're, they're being yeah, friendly. That's what Judith is doing right now. Well, my daughter went surfing with her boyfriend uh, off of uh, Double Bluff, and there was there was surf. Hard to believe, but there it was. Enough little surf to mm, just chug onto the beach. Yeah, just I suppose you could have it down there. A Pe little mini break. Mini breaks. Mini breaks. Well, that's what we're going to give you for about the next hour right here is a little mini break in your regularly scheduled life. Yeah, how about that regularly scheduled life? It just comes and goes like the summer. This is the second of two cables that our ambassador to Afghanistan, Carl Eikenberry, sent to 
Hillary Clinton, this one on the 9th of November that follows up the longer screed of the 6th of November. That was about counterinsurgency in terms of civilian concerns. This cable is called Looking Beyond Counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. It's a secret cable that the New York Times was able to somehow dig out of somebody and publish. Madam Secretary, my previous cable addressed concerns about taking a decision too soon on a proposed counterinsurgency strategy that relies on a large, all-or-nothing increase in U.S. troops. I now propose that the White House commission a deliberate process to lay out the range of strategic options on Afghanistan and Pakistan, broadening the analysis beyond military counterinsurgency doctrine. There are three purposes of doing so. First, to make sure that we have tested every assumption behind the Afghan-focused military counterinsurgency proposal. Second, to examine non-military alternatives or companion requirements to a major troop increase. Third, to develop U.S. political understanding and support, as well as Afghan and allied public commitment. After such a process, General McChrystal's proposal may prove exactly what the president will decide is needed, but the time and effort put into this further deliberation will yield benefits far offsetting the costs, in my judgment. I support McChrystal's military analysis and recommendations as logical and compelling within his narrow mandate to define the needs for a military counterinsurgency campaign within Afghanistan. But the problems confronting our own strategic purpose, as laid out by the President on March 27th, are broader, and we must consider a wider set of variables before reaching a final decision. These unaddressed variables include Pakistan sanctuaries, a weak Afghanistan leadership and governance, NATO civil-military integration, and our national will to bear the human and fiscal costs over many years. The current military proposal properly sets aside each of these issues and many more because they are outside McChrystal's counterinsurgency mandate. Yet in reality, each has the potential to block us from achieving our strategic goals, regardless of the number of additional troops that we may send. We have time. Some argue that we must decide on the full-up troop deployment now. The military's long lead times, the requirement to bring along our NATO allies, and the, need to single, and the need to signal decisiveness and resolve are adduced as compelling reasons to announce the full troop request quickly. I disagree. We have the time we need, certainly into early next year. We must take that time to decide on the right course. As serious as the security picture in Afghanistan is today, it is not so dire that we need to announce or commit ourselves to sweeping changes immediately, either in our military or civilian posture. For example, additional combat brigades could be designated for possible deployment and begin training without requiring an immediate decision on whether to send them all. They would be arriving in increments in any case. To show resolve, the president must announce that he was immediately ordering a smaller contingent of U.S. forces to mentor the Afghan National Security Force and to protect the population, while emphasizing that further deployment would be conditioned on specific steps by the Afghan government, such as a commitment and a plan to take full responsibility for national defense on a specific timeline. Afghans, allies, and others in the region would see this not as indecision, but rather as seriousness of purpose why we must take the time. 
We have not yet conducted a comprehensive interdisciplinary analysis of all our strategic options, nor have we brought all of the real-world variables to bear in testing the proposed counterinsurgency plan. We agree that more troops will yield more security wherever they deploy for as long as they stay. But the last time we sent substantial additional forces, a deployment totaling 33,000 in 2008-2009, overall violence and instability in Afghanistan intensified. Also, neither the Afghan National Security Force nor the Afghan government has demonstrated the will or ability to take over lead security responsibility, much less governance, in any area cleared and held by NATO ISAF. Experience with troop increases, therefore, offers scant reason to expect that further increases will permanently advance our strategic purposes. Instead, they will dig us in more deeply. We also need time to work with President Karzai and his new team, many of whom may not be in place for several months, to test whether they are both able and committed to lead the counterinsurgency mission we are defining for them. In fact, Karzai explicitly rejected the counterinsurgency basis and purpose of McChrystal's proposal when first briefed on it in detail two months ago. Rather, in a PBS interview on November 7th, Karzai sounded bizarrely cautionary about his willingness to address governance and corruption. This tracks with his record of inaction or grudging compliance in this area. We need an intense, high-level dialogue to judge whether we can gain enforceable commitments from the Afghan government to build their own capacity and to assume responsibility for security and governance in cleared areas. Absent such a judgment, we cannot presume that another large infusion of U.S. troops necessarily will give us leverage over them. I don't want it anymore, Dr. Gunderson. Don't want what, child? My coffee. The warden says he's tired of my coffee. Well, it's been pretty clear that your coffee don't got zest appeal. Zest appeal? What's that? I don't know. Oh. That's the secret ingredient in Erzot Brothers Coffee. Yeah, look here. Huh? A blend oh. of the finest Brazilian soya beans, huh? Chilean chicory nuts, huh? and Spanish flies. Oh. Here, take this can home with you, Katie. The next morning... More uh, coffee, Warden. Oh, no, I think I've had enough. Oh. <laughs> Airzatz Brothers Coffee, the real one. Look for the can in the plain brown can. This is the second part of Ambassador Carl Eikenberry's secret cable to Hillary Clinton on November 9th when he discusses the advisability or the inadvisability of sending thirty to 40,000 troops immediately to Afghanistan. It's a secret cable. The subject is looking beyond counterinsurgency in Afghanistan. His recommendation. Hence, we recommend a comprehensive, deliberate, and interdisciplinary re-examination of our strategic options carried out by the end of the year to decide how best to accomplish the President's March 27th strategy. This should go beyond a war game or red team exercise, yet not become a months-long Baker-Hamilton-style commission for Afghanistan and Pakistan. Rather, the White House could appoint a panel of civilian and military experts to examine the Afghanistan-Pakistan strategy and the full range of options. It could include eminent bipartisan political figures such as former senior U.S. government and congressional leaders. Among the issues this panel should examine are the potential that a reintegration reconciliation program has for taking insurgents off the battlefield, the only approach holding attraction for Karzai and the mass of Afghans.
the prospects for the Pakistan security services putting meaningful pressure against the Afghan Taliban, the insurgent sanctuaries and leadership, and al-Qaeda. The impact of increasing U.S. and international aid and development programs on long-term stability in Afghanistan and Pakistan. The second and third order effects within Afghanistan and the region of sending more U.S. troops. The U.S. and allied willingness to bear the cost in lives and treasure over the timeline in the ISAF proposal. And whether our definition of the strategic problem in purely military terms of counterinsurgency within Afghanistan is sufficient to address the president's strategic focus on al-Qaeda with both Afghanistan and Pakistan. This strategic re-examination could either include or lead to high-level U.S. talks with the Afghans, the Pakistanis, the Saudis, and other important regional players, including possibly Iran, as well as NATO, its component nations, and even the United Nations. Such a process of rigorous internal U.S. government deliberations leading to deeper political military consultations with our allies and other stakeholders could powerfully build support at home and abroad for the president's eventual decisions about the way forward. The Risks McChrystal has laid out the risk we face in not sending the full complement of additional troops right now. But there are competing risks. For example, that we will become more deeply engaged here with no way to extricate ourselves short of allowing the country to descend again into lawlessness and chaos. Also, the demand for U.S. and allied civilian efforts in Afghanistan will only grow with the deployment of large numbers of additional U.S. troops. To mitigate such countervailing risks, I believe there is no option but to widen the scope of our analysis to consider alternatives beyond a strictly military counterinsurgency effort with Afghanistan. Respectfully, Carl Eikenberry. Okay, it's being reported now by the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. The, that's the organization that's got 31 of the, the largest economies in the world is the membership. It's a big economic heavyweight body. Okay? okay. They say now the longer a person is unemployed, the harder it is typically to gain back paid employment. And this threatens to mark whole generations, says the Organization for Economic mm -hmm. Cooperation and Development. They got a report out called Employment Outlook 2010. There are 47 million unemployed in the OECD's 31 member countries, the world's most developed economies. 31 okay. million people out of work? 47 million. 47 million? No rosy glasses here. Ooh. That's a rate of 8.6%, according to the May 2.10 figures, that compares with last year's May figures of 5.8. Ooh. Ooh. And the United States, get ready, accounts for more than half of the jobs shed since 2007, 10 million. 10 million jobs. Well, Gone since 2007 and not coming back. Well, um, I think we have to thank President Clinton for sending a lot of jobs across the, oh, across that border. Remember the border? Oh, yeah. That, yeah. We certainly solved a lot of cross-border problems by sending all of our, uh, uh, you know, manufacturing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ross Perot yeah. talked about the great sucking sound. Well, no. maybe that great mm. sucking sound is just basically a reprise of the Clinton administration's job. I mean, this is the thing about capitalism, is if it's cheaper to make steel somewhere else, it's going to go somewhere else. So there are no steel workers. If there are cars and you can make them cheaper, 
in a state that doesn't have a union, they're going to make it in the state. I mean, come on. That's the way the system works. So 10 million jobs, those are 10 million jobs. I wouldn't say they've all gone overseas. I think a lot of those jobs have just disappeared, that no one makes this stuff anymore. Well, you know, there's 10 million people who used to be hanging by their fingernails on the bottom line, and they've fallen into the safety net, which isn't there. You know, we've educated people so that they only know how to do one thing yeah. for one for one thing. Yeah. I mean, kids who have only got a high school education, forget it. They're never going to get any job that requires math above sixth grade level, which apparently n- nobody has. I mean, every graduate has to go to uh, exceptional math and, uh, and English school, so they just survive having gotten through middle school and high school. I mean, no wonder, no wonder you can't have a society that performs complicated jobs unless you educate the kids so that they can do those things. And that doesn't mean calculus, friends. It really doesn't. You know, long division, that'll do it. Yeah, but all we're doing is sending long divisions to Afghanistan. I forgot about them. I've got Ace Hoffman on the phone, who is um, an independent uh, software designer, and he's the man that runs AnimatedSoftware.com. I want to make sure you get that URL, because we're going to go up there and take a look at Poison Fire USA, and it's a gas, so to speak. How are you, Ace? I'm fine, thank you. And, And am I talking to you down in Southern California? Yes. Yes, indeed. Well, I lived there for 43 years, and I'm glad to be on Whidbey Island. I'm here in the middle of the forest with the deer and the, you know, and the blackberries and all that. So, but anyway, now, Poison Fire USA is an animation that you have up on the web. Tell me about it. Tell me the background on it. And then as I start to run it, I will try to explain it to the uh, visually impaired radio audience and, of course, expect them to go up there and have fun themselves. What's behind all this? A person wanted to do a documentary on uh, on uh, uranium poisoning in, in America, mainly on native lands, and they got hold of me through uh, uh, one of the one of the activist groups uh, because they knew I was a, a programmer, and they wanted something that showed what the history of the poisoning had been, and they gave me the phrase "poison fire." That's what the natives call radioactive poisoning uh-huh. and so I got hold of various activist groups and some books and things to gather up all of the information every little piece that we could find we wanted every mine every uh, power plant every nuclear explosion everything every uh, every uh, research site every university uh, nuclear reactor we wanted to put everything in there and then see what happened. It's a marvelous timeline. This is an animated timeline. You're looking at a topological uh, map of the United States, and you have these little icons, like the uh, nuclear bomb blasts on continental U.S., nice little bomb. And every time one is tested, of course, they were above ground at, at Los Alamos, but then it's all underground stuff. Nuclear uh, uh, research labs and weapon labs and uranium processing facilities and mines and 
and low-level uh, waste dumps, and then it's got the two types of uh, nuclear plants, the boiling water reactors and the pressurized water reactors, and then down here, nuclear carriers, nuclear submarines, nuclear cruisers, and, and NASA rockets, and they all just kind of like go out to sea and they fly out. You're just going to love it. There's, You know what I like about this, Ace, is that dealing with such a deadly issue, an end-of-the-world issue, there's something so charming about the animation. You know, if you didn't know what it was all about, you'd think this was happy time. So I'm going to, I'm just going to start the animation here. And then as we're talking, you can just, well, we're in 1942 and this is going to go from 1941 to 2004, right? Yeah. And I'll update it eventually to put the next 10 years in or whatever when yeah. I finally get around to it. But it does actually count up everything. So you have the total number of bomb blasts, the total yep. number of reactors that have been opened and closed the total number of nuclear submarines, nuclear carriers. It's unbelievable how many of these things we've built. Oh, it is. I mean, there's zero submarines and zero carriers. I'm already in 1951. But all of a sudden, these guys are going to start flowing out of, what, New London, amongst other places. You yeah, know. you'll see two, two red ones come out. Those are the two that were lost. These actually... <laughs> Good each, Lord. Each, each yeah. of those point, uh, of those uh, icons that you see coming flying out, yeah. it, the program stores which submarine it was, what date it was launched, and so forth. It, the program knows a lot more information than it's presenting. Oh. That was something else that was going to go into an upgrade. Well, there it is. Yeah, they're coming out, and they just can't get enough of them. And, of course, there's mines all over, and now we're beginning to see the advent of nuclear reactors because we're in 1962. Oh, there's the red one. <laughs> one of the two. Poor dear. The mines, actually, there are hundreds more mines. It was impossible to do all the mines. They, they open, they close, they don't get officially recognized anywhere. Yeah. There are just hundreds and hundreds of mines. But other than that, it's pretty accurate. Well, it's 1968 now. There's been 111 explosions off continental United States, 569, 77, 96. It keeps going, you know, bomb blasts. And we've got 95 nuclear submarines, and they're just 100. It just builds up. Oh, my God, the treasure that we spent on all this stuff. All right, here they go. They're just going to sea. So what you want to go to, tell, tell people how they get to this animation. Well, if they go to my homepage and then click on links, L-I-N-K-S, it's, yeah. it's one of the links, and it's just called Poison Fire USA. So they go up to animatedsoftware.com, and what Ace does is he, you create um, animated pro educational animated programs all about the pump and all about the heart and all, and, you know, as a way of using your, I find them really wonderful animations as, an as a teaching tool, right? Yeah, actually, uh, that's how I started, was to do the tutorial about the heart about 25 years ago. Uh-huh. Well, and... Uh, so I've, I've stuck with educational software since then. The, in the links section, the one to the left of Poison Fire USA is uh, how nuclear reactors work. And even though I am totally against reactors, those are so accurate that I get calls or emails from all over the world from pro-nuclear organizations that want to use those animations. They, they don't realize who they're dealing with, I guess. Well, you know, they, they, they honestly think it's a good thing, right? And they, they just love the fact that you're showing them in, in a nice, and as, as I say, a, a pleasing way of how these things work. Yeah, all the submarines and the cruisers are just pouring out. It's now 1996. Now, we've stopped blowing things up in Nevada. Well, no, there was a couple right there. Oh, there's another one. They're not as big, but are we still testing underground? They now are testing, they call them subcritical tests. 
and what exactly that means and whether or not there's any radiation is debatable. But I think some years it means something different from what it means other years. They change the definitions of almost everything to suit their perceived uh, societal impact. Well, I, people, go on up to animatedsoftware.com, Ace Hoffman's site, and once you see it, if you like it, you know, send the link out. Make this go viral. It's probably gone viral already, but I really enjoy looking at it. Thank you very much, Ace. Uh, keep up the good work. Thanks very much. Well, there's a lot about the old peachy state in Talking Points memos. Some weird stuff happening in Georgia, David. Georgia on my mind. Yes. Yeah, I mean the whole South is 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 getting really weird during this election. I mean, the only uh, person with any sanity seems to be Charlie Crist, and he has to run as an independent, so he isn't being rocked by all those teabaggers. You know, it's hot down there, and there are oil bulls washing up on everybody's beaches. You know, so it's, they're it, upset. It's, yeah, it's it's temper time. Well, there's this guy, a Republican, uh, Nathan. Deal is running for governor, right? He's in a packed field, and he's promising to use local cops to deport illegal immigrants and daring the federal government to try and stop them. I'm not worried about the liberals, Deal says in the ad. My concern is you, as if everybody he's talking to is not a liberal. He's somehow he's on a, a, a television station that won't allow liberals to see or hear it, no matter how hard they try. It's a blank screen. I like the idea of, you know, Georgia, Georgia State Police with, they probably have those Smokey the Bear hats, you know. And, yeah, with a big peach on it. Yeah, a big peach on it. And they're, <laughs> they drive up to, they drive these guys to the airport, right? Yeah. Say, all right, we're going to put these fellas right on the plane right now. Uh, excuse me, uh, do you have tickets? for these? No, we're, we're the state patrol right here. These are illegals. Just put them on a plane. I don't care where they go. We're In any them. direction. Any direction. All Get right. them out of here. So, Deal, he, he's going yeah. even farther and he actually... He's going farther. Well, he welcomed the idea of the lawsuit being filed against Georgia, just like the one the Justice Department just filed against uh, Arizona. He says, uh, we're uh, outraged, he said. Outraged. We're outraged at the Obama administration's answer. The Obama, remember now, Obama's the not me. It's always his fault. Yeah, it can't be, yeah, yeah. It can't be anybody else but Obama. It says, we're outraged the Obama administration's answer is to sue a state that's trying to enforce the law. Well, I have a message for the president. When I'm governor, you can sue us too. You know what he wanted to say after that. I can bet what he Because in to Georgia, say. we believe in the rule of law and we believe in protecting taxpayers. My God. So you're going to deport illegal aliens to protect taxpayers when honestly <clears throat> potential governor you don't have the right to do that well you he's got don't. the right to do it because he's from georgia and he's running for governor and he's well, a sweetie isn't it you look that's okay yeah and also he says the new ad doubles down on that these promises and and strives to remind voters that deal has already put his money where his mouth is on the topic of immigration i wrote the law to stop illegal aliens from receiving taxpayer funded health care he says that he's a sweetie you put a cop at the door of every ER and check the birth certificate of, of the sick and wounded as they try to enter. And once again, we're uh, taking out our self-created problems on the weak and the vulnerable. Finally, I, I, I realize that we have a state chairman for the Society for a Compassion-Free America right down there in Georgia. Please. But the sane in Georgia are worried, right? Because <laughs> now uh, the Democratic, there's a Democratic gubernatorial candidate running against deal named Roy Barnes, mm -hmm. says some of the strange ideas offered up by state Republicans, like talk of secession and a bill to ban microchip implants. Plants have Whoa, serious consequences. Na, 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 na. Yes, 
He says they're losing Georgia jobs and making the state a national punchline. He says a governor can create jobs by selling the advantages of Georgia to firms looking for a home, he says. But we can't bring jobs to Georgia with the rest of the country laughing at us. It's hard for industry to take us seriously. He says when the legislature attempts to outlaw stem cell research, passes bills about microchips in the brain and talks about seceding from the union. Earlier in the year, Dave. The Georgia State Senate, this is their state Senate, passed a bill backed by Republicans that would make it a misdemeanor to force someone to be implanted with a microchip. And one of the bill's supporters, State Representative Ed Seltzler, called the measure proactive. Radio Now. If it's not now, you're dead meat. It's a graze. They're behind the plan to make us marry our toast. Foster's dense muscle. It's in a jar at the White House with Hillary's car. The great seat and put electricity in my toothpaste. Someone on the Supreme Court's a woman, and it's not the one you think. Angels on asteroids are abducting crop circles. It's not coming to an end. Cause it never it's 11.05.30, high time for a bright light to pierce the conspiratorial darkness. No, I'm not afraid to talk about it, so don't come up on me. I'm Harold Hipugger with Night Whispers. Night Whispers. Good evening. I'm here beneath the biggest party of the millennium under the stands at Homeless Stadium. And it's uh, time for Fun Fun Town's uh, most controversial radio broadcast. And my only guest tonight, well, I suppose I'm actually his guest, uh, General Y2K, commander of the last minute men. Uh, Y2K, that's not your, your real name, is it, Mildew? These are the last minutes of the last hours of the last century, Hipugger. Mm. The countdown for liberty has begun. Yes, and before the nameless faces of the new world order can pull the switch, I'm pulling it. Well, that's fascinating, General. Uh, I was n- napping you... poolside at the Gulf War Swim Drome when the government put a chip in my ass. Oh. And I'm not going to take it sitting down. Oh. It's high noon, daylight slavery time. <laughs> and as of now, you take your orders from us. And that means me. Well, you hold right on to that thought, General, because I've got some ant farms to sell here. As you know, dear friends, these DOA ant farms are a lot safer than the scorpion survival yo-yos we offered last week. What the hell's a survival yo-yo? They've got a little compass in them. They got a knife? No, no. If you want a knife, that's the Swiss Army scorpion survival yo-yo. You're giving me a brain cramp. Anyway, dear friends, these ant farms are an easy care miracle. No food, no water required, because all these little monsters are dead on arrival under the sand at the bottom of the box. Just send twenty nine ninety nine gold or silver coin only to post office box I-210, Donkey Dump, Utah. So, General Waituki, you're giving the orders, you say? Right. One. I want to order one of those ant farms. We don't have to do that. I'll give you this one. Okay. Two. No, I can the, only give you the one because it's No, no, it's no, 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 okay, then B, B. All washing machines, rice cookers, bread makers, coffee makers, chainsaws, and dust suckers are to be destroyed. The chainsaws? No. Well, well, not chainsaws, but everything else. Well, tell us why, can you, General? <laughs> They're all time-saving devices, aren't they? And who's getting the time they're saving? You know, I think action speaks louder than words. Lights up. All right, men. Let's massacre those Mr. Coffees. 
Chase fire! Now, now we'll make coffee the old cowboy way. Boil it up in your hat. What was the point of that, General? You don't know from Doodly Squad, do you, puke? Those 50 little bubbling bastards we just terminated saved the enemy three minutes a day. We just took back 150 minutes, and that doesn't suck! Uh, it took them back from, from who? The from gaggle whom? of maggots in the eyeball hats. No, right, no, man? No, no, no. Those eyeball hats are a novelty item. I, I've got a, a very good deal on them coming up later in the Negatory, show. Negatory, Hal. My men torched the eyeball warehouse this morning. We nuked them till they glowed and shot. Shut up in the uh, dark! No, all my tax records were in that warehouse. Look, let's just go to the phones. Hal, Hal, put a hold on the phones. That general's as buggy as a bum's blanket. I'm pulling you out of there pronto now. Yeah, come on, Hal, man. Get back to the station. Ray's got some bubbly. Be good for your nose. Get out of there. Oh, thank God. Uh, the microphone is all yours, what, what General. What about the phones? Hey, hey, where are you going, Mr. Uh, I'm, I'm going to turn up your volume out uh, in the truck. I don't want to say that that kid sucks, but he certainly inhales deeply. All right, man! Line up the dust suckers! Noose this wacko! More than 27,000 abandoned oil and gas wells lurk in the hard rock beneath the Gulf of Mexico, an environmental minefield that has been ignored for decades. No one, not industry, not government, not anyone is checking to see if they are leaking, this according to an Associated Press investigation. The oldest of these wells were abandoned in the late 1940s, raising the prospect that many deteriorating sealing jobs are already failing. The investigation uncovered particular concern with 3,500 of the neglected wells, those characterized in federal government records as temporarily abandoned. Regulations for temporarily abandoned wells require oil companies to present plans to reuse or permanently plug such wells within a year. So they have to either go back at them or they got to plug them for good within a year. But the Associated Press found that the rule is routinely circumvented and that more than 1,000 wells have lingered in that unfinished condition for more than a decade. Nobody's paying attention. You know what's going to be circumvented now? The Gulf of Mexico. You're not going to be able to sail through it because of the six-foot oil scum. About three-quarters of temporarily abandoned wells have been left in that status for more than a year and many since the 1950s and 1960s. Just getting ready to leak with those poor seals. As a forceful reminder of the potential harm, the well beneath BP's Deepwater Horizon rig was being sealed with cement for temporary abandonment when it blew April 20th. BP alone has abandoned about 600 wells in the Gulf, according to government data. There's ample reason for worry about all permanently and temporarily abandoned wells. History shows that at least on land, they often leak. Wells are sealed underwater much as they are sealed on land, and wells on land and in water face similar risk of failure. Experts say such wells can repressurize. Very much like myself, every time I read one of these stories, I repressurize. Repressurize, much like a dormant volcano can awaken, and years of exposure to seawater and underground pressure can cause cementing and piping to corrode and weaken and break. Whether a well is permanently or temporarily abandoned, improperly applied or aging cement can crack or shrink, independent petroleum en engineers say. They're independent, in other words, they're not sucking the teat of BP or Shell or one of the others. Quote, 
It ages, just like it does on buildings and highways, said Robert Anderson, a Columbia University petroleum geophysicist who has conducted research on commercial wells. Despite the likelihood of leaks, large and small though, right, abandoned wells are typically not inspected by industry or government. Look, I'm not a big government basher, and I know the GOP is going after Obama and the government, but the fact is this particular bureaucracy having to do with oil, mineral, wasting resources, precious resources, has been asleep, it's been corrupt, it's been circumvented, it has been loaded with brainless bureaucrats, and it's got to be changed. Oil company representatives, okay, we better listen, sit up and listen, because this is coming directly from oil company representatives. They insist that the seal on a correctly plugged offshore well will last virtually forever. Virtually forever. Okay, yeah. Officials at the U.S. Interior Department, which oversees the agency that regulates federal leases in the Gulf and elsewhere, did not answer repeated questions regarding why there are no inspections of abandoned wells. Because they don't know or they don't want to tell or they're being muzzled or they're asleep. State officials estimate that tens of thousands are badly sealed, either because they predate strict regulation or because the operating companies violated rules. Really, you think so? Texas alone has plugged more than 21,000 abandoned wells to control pollution, according to the state controller's office. Offshore, but in state waters, California has resealed scores of its abandoned wells since the 80s. In deeper federal waters, though, despite the similarities in how such wells are constructed and how sealing procedures can fail, the official policy is out of sight, out of mind. Well, we are in deep federal waters as I speak. The U.S. Minerals Management Service, the regulatory agency recently renamed the Bureau of Ocean Energy Management, renaming it ain't gonna help it, Excuse me, there's more. The Bureau of Ocean Energy Management Regulation and Enforcement relies on rules that have few real teeth. Once an oil company says it will permanently abandon a well, it has one year to complete the job. The fact that so many wells that have been classified for decades as temporary abandoned suggests that paperwork can be shuffled at MMS without any real changes beneath the water. Well, there are changes beneath the water. There are plumes appearing. Companies may be tempted to skimp on sealing jobs, which are expensive and slow offshore. It would cost the industry at least $3 billion to permanently plug the 10,500 now active wells and the 3,500 temporarily abandoned ones in the Gulf. $3 billion. Come on, empty your pockets, boys, and get to work. Mysteriosos revelados del Congo 
ritire della malda, trujo poderoso, chengo macho. Buenos sueños convertidos en realidad. Buenos sueños convertidos en realidad. Son, you know that Sunday sun Then we'll go marching, baby, one by one I Start by calling you 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 Remember when George Bush made that recess appointment of John Bolton and sent him over to the UN, the man who hated the UN representing us at the UN, how bushy, and we were all really upset because he didn't get a chance to go through the confirmation process. Well, Barack Obama has done it, but he hasn't given us a John Bolton. He's given us two or three people with really fine credentials who probably would have been crucified by the Senate and never passed through the process. And like many other people up for these kinds of positions would have dropped out. So the White House made the recess appointment of Harvard Medical School professor Donald Berwick official, selecting him to lead the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services and sidestepping a protracted battle on the Hill over his nomination. We need him. This is the time. Medicare, Medicaid, can't wait. People sick, people old. It's unfortunate 
This is a quote that at a time when our nation is facing enormous challenges, many in Congress have decided to delay critical nominations for political purposes, uh, President Barack Obama said in a recent statement. The White House also announced the appointments of Philip E. Coyle III as Associate Director for National Security and International Affairs, and Joshua Gottbaum as Director of the Pension Benefit Guarantee Corporation. All three appointments would confer the powers of a permanent appointee until basically the end of the 111th Congress, which is in 2011, at which point they'd have to be uh, reconfirmed by the Senate. Now, Republican opponents bristled. I'd like to see the Republicans bristle. How could John Bomer bristle with that kind of matte hair that he constantly bakes in those tanning parlors? I'd like to see Suntan King bristle. Republican opponents bristled over Benwick's statement that Britain's National Health Service is an example for the United States and threatened to paint him as an advocate of rationing health care. Once again, they got no plan. All they can do is make trouble, tell lies, and keep things from happening. So Barack had to do what he had to do. Now, the CMS office has been without a permanent head since 2006, and the office will play a key role in the implementation of the health care legislation passed by Congress earlier this year. You think maybe the GOP, who said it's uh, Obama's Waterloo, man, might be holding up the man's uh, nomination because it's another way of keeping us from effectively executing the new health care plan? Oh, they wouldn't do that. Berwick served as president and chief executive officer at the Institute for Healthcare Improvement at the Harvard Medical School and is also a professor of health policy and management at the Harvard School of Public Health. I'd say the guy's got the creds, okay? Thank you, Barack. Go ahead and do it. As long as the GOP is going to stand in your way with just no, 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 you might just as well use any power you have to put good people in the right place at the right time. David, those chickens are applauding. <laughs> yes. Because Governor Schwarzenegger has signed a bill backed by the Humane Society of the U.S. that requires that starting in 2015, all whole eggs, that's eggs in the shell, sold in California must come from hens who are able to stand up, lie down, turn around, and fully extend their limbs without touching one another or the sides of an enclosure. In other words, California will become a cage-free state. All right, you hens, line up. I want you all to stand up. Yeah. I want you to stand up there, hands. Okay, could, could you please just put your wings out so you're evenly spaced? No, put your wings out so... This is hopeless. I, I, I don't want these cage-free animals here. I, I like them, you know, in those little those little grids where, where their eggs just drop down. You never even have to look at a disgusting chicken. Ah! Well, you can't really, Dave, for all for all of your emotional responses. Yes, yes. You really can't call California a cage-free state when you consider that we've got, or they've got all those prisoners <laughs> yeah, stuffed into prisons those jails. Uh, yeah. Okay, with yeah. 40 million consumers in California, it would be hard to overestimate the potential of this bill to change the way laying hands are treated throughout the United States. And the victory comes just days after Ohio Governor Ted Strickland... Guy I kind of like. Uh-huh. He's one of those Democrats that's hanging on in Ohio. Imposed a moratorium on new battery cage facilities in Ohio, the nation's second largest egg production state. Here's my worry, though. Here's my worry. Okay. Yep. You know, because, you know, the Greenies are coming, man. The, the, the Humane Society, the Greenies, the PETAs, I'm all for them. But they're going, to, they're going to drive the price of eggs skyrocket when they require that all these chickens take Pilates. <laughs> <laughs> all right, you chickens. Welcome, General Petraeus, to your new position here as head of the forces in Afghanistan. Here's a cup of coffee and a PR disaster. 
NATO mistakenly killed five of its Afghan army allies in a recent airstrike while they were attacking insurgents in the country's east, officials said. An Afghan defense official condemned the latest friendly fire deaths, which came at a time when international troops are trying to improve coordination with Afghan security forces in hopes of handing over more responsibility to them nearly nine years into the war. Well, international troops, it's us and a few people from Britain and I think Estonia. So it's our problem. And in fact, Britain just handed over the most, uh, you know, the hottest part of Helmand uh, province to the Americans. They want out. So basically, it's our problem. And we talk about the hopes of handling over more responsibility to the Afghans. It's been nearly nine years old. Well, we're going to be coming up with the Eikenberry cables that were just revealed, and it really goes into that in detail. All right, the Afghan soldiers were launching an an ambush before dawn against insurgents reportedly on the move in Ghazni province when NATO aircraft began firing on them without warning. Afghan Defense Military Spokesman General Mohammad Zahir Azimi said that. Five Afghan soldiers died and two more were wounded in the airstrike in Ghazani's Andar district. NATO spokesman Joseph Blotz confirmed the botched airstrike. He said he regretted the Afghan National Army deaths, telling a news briefing that a joint investigation has been launched so they can basically give it the push, the whitewash, the goodbye. The reason for this is perhaps a coordination issue, Blot said. We were obviously not absolutely clear whether there were Afghan National Security Forces in the area. In other words, we don't have a clue what's going on here. Okay, everybody. And Uh-oh. I'm speaking to everybody all across the web world from, I don't know, from Toledo to Sheboygan to Uzbekistan. Right? He's got that look on his face. Folks. America is is now a f- the official land of wingnuts. Uh, we've always known it, but you know, it's Arizona's going crazy, and we see Georgia's a ha-ha state, and of course, South Carolina has been, you know, off, off the edge for a long time. Now, you know, Alvin Green, all right, the unemployed veteran who mysteriously won the state's Democratic Senate primary oh, without yeah. campaigning? Oh, yeah. Yeah, well, he has come up with his own stimulus plan. Are you ready? I'm okay, ready. drum roll. Another thing we can do for jobs, he says, is make toys of me, especially for the holidays. Little dolls. Me. Like maybe little action dolls. Me in an army uniform, Air Force uniform, and me in my suit. They can make toys of me and my vehicle, especially for the holidays and Christmas for the kids. That's something that would create jobs. So you see, I think out of the box like that. It's not something a typical person would bring up. That's something that could happen. That makes sense. It's not a joke. I like this guy. Yeah. Action I, dolls of me. Of me. Of yeah, me. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Make toys of me. Even, That's it. E- even that wrestler from Minnesota, he didn't even have action no, toys made of him. No, because Jesse was vaguely modest. Right? Well, and he had a brain. Well, that too. Yeah, that too. But I like this guy. Green, huh? Yeah, green. He, he, it's not a joke. He is, but that's not a joke. No. The New York Times tells us a Japanese court has convicted Peter Bethune, an anti-whaling activist from New Zealand, of assault and obstructing Japan's whaling fleet in the Antarctic. But his sentence was suspended, meaning that he will not be jailed. Bethune is a member of the Sea Shepherd Conservation Society. He boarded a Japanese whaling ship from a jet ski in the southern Antarctic in February and threw bottles of butyric acid at the whalers. One bottle cracked open and three crew members suffered minor burns, prosecutors charged. 
The Tokyo District Court also found Mr. Bethune guilty of trespassing, vandalism, and possession of a knife. The presiding judge, wait a minute, you need a knife for you if you're in the Antarctic, right? You gotta protect yourself. Okay. The presiding judge, Takashi Tawada, sentenced Mr. Bethune to two years in prison with a sentence suspended for five years. So Bethune pleaded guilty to all charges except assault at the start of his trial in May and under a suspended sentence, those convicted do not have to serve the prison term unless they are charged with other crimes. Bethune said he boarded the Japanese whaler to confront the captain over the sinking of a Sea Shepherd protest vessel, the A.D. Gill, in a January collision. Each vessel blamed the other for the incident. According to local news reports, Mr. Bethune approached the whaling ship, the Shonan Maru 2, on February 15th, cut through an anti-boarding net, draped around the hull, and climbed onto its deck. So, I mean, these these whalers are sailing with anti-boarding nets. So, I mean, you know, they know they're doing something controversial. Once on board, Mr. Bethune presented the captain with a bill for damages to the 80 Gill. Instead, he was taken into custody by the crew who held him for a month as the whaling ship returned to Japan. He was a prisoner for a month. The judge, Mr. Tawada, called Mr. Bethune's actions sabotage and based on selfish beliefs. Well, that's enough to send you to jail in Japan. You based on selfish beliefs. But the court decided to hand down a suspended sentence because Mr. Bethune had no previous criminal record in Japan and said he would not engage in similar protests. Mr. Bethune's arrest has received heavy news coverage in Japan, where the Sea Shepherd's mission to obstruct the country's whale hunts are looked upon with disdain. Japanese fisheries officials call the protesters terrorists. Japan kills about 1,000 whales a year, primarily minke whales, as part of the government finance program that Tokyo says is for scientific purposes. Activists call the program a cover for commercial whaling, which was banned worldwide in 1986. So... Here's what I want to know, Japanese scientists. What new scientific data are you going to pick up killing another thousand whales that you haven't gotten killing a thousand whales every year for decades? What's so new? Sea Shepherd has tried to disrupt Japan's Antarctic hunts by blocking its ships, using ropes to clog their propellers, and throwing rancid butter onto the decks to make them slippery. Rancid butter on the decks to make them slippery. Not what I would call like a class A strategy. The group said Bethune will be welcomed home to New Zealand as a national hero. Sea Shepherd is proud of Captain Bethune's achievements and satisfied with the results of this ridiculous trial that saw a man incarcerated for saving the lives of whales. Now, outside the Tokyo court, about 30 Japanese nationalist demonstrators chanted and held up placards denouncing the Sea Shepherd and Mr. Bethune, the Associated Press reported. One placard read, Give Sea Shepherd Terrorist Capital Punishment. These nationalists are heavy guys. They come from a wonderful tradition, you know, just before World War II, they went around, you know, cutting <laughs> cutting every uh, prime minister that didn't agree with them in half with these huge swords, and they're still there. So this is good, right? Right. Kill the whales. This is what the, the nationalists want. Kill the whales and kill the guy trying to stop you from killing the whales. Those Japanese nationalists are a dangerous bunch, I swear, and they make the tea partiers look like wusses.
Well, it is indeed the middle of the month. Again, that idea of beginning, reaching the apex, and down to the nadir. Ah, well, this is the Ralph Nadir time here at Radio Free Oz. We're coming to an end today, and we're going to tang out, Dave. We're going to tang out. Here's here's one by Tu Fu, but it's dedicated to Lee Poe. We've oh, been reading a lot of Lee Poe. He's the po. guy that leaned his grief on two trees yesterday. That's right. That's well, here's Tu Fu writing, writing about him, to him. The cloud floats off the way the sun went. The traveler doesn't come back. Three nights in a row I dreamed of you, old friend, so real I could have touched you. You left in a hurry, I'll bet you're having a bad journey. Storms come up fast on those rivers and lakes. Don't fall out of your boat. Leaving framed in the doorway, you scratched your snowy head. I knew you didn't want to go. Bureaucrats fatten in the capital while a poet goes cold and hungry. If there is justice in heaven, what sent you out to banishment? Ages to come will warm themselves at your verses. But it's a cold, silent world you left behind. Too much, too foo. Yeah! Radio Free Oz. Let's give you the Oz team that puts it all together. I'm your host, Peter Bergman. Our co-host, David Osman. We got John Cumming and Phil Fountain and Tom Goodwillow, fine people all, Chaz Glass, Dave Maloney, Bill McIntyre, and Scott Wilde. Oh, kill joie. <laughs>